Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. My latest guest is someone who's just taken on a big role at a pivotal time for the insurance market. I spoke to Stephen Possewhite of QBE about hardening rates at the mid-year renewals, capital crunches, squeezes in ILS and retro, and the long-term insurability of pandemic risk. I also asked him about what might change at QBE now that the former actuary and Aspen executive has taken the reins. I found someone freshly reloaded with capital and risk appetite and full of expansion plans. It was refreshing. Now, a quick apology. These lockdown-affected podcasts mean we have to do interviews however we can. This web chat sound quality leaves a lot to be desired. Stephen fades in and out a bit. Well, in fact, quite a lot. But I think you can work out what he's saying. Anyway, it is what it is. Please persevere, because what he is saying is incredibly bold and frank. My first question to Stephen was to ask him what, if anything, would change under his leadership at QBE Re. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Yes, I think, I think you know, what I would say you know, as a starting point is the business that I've taken over has been really excellently managed and very, very well underwritten. I mean, it is, above all, it has a, a very strong underwriting ethos behind it and technical ethos as well. And so I'm not picking up something that's broken. I'm not picking up something that needs wholesale change. However, the cycle management process that has been employed within QB over time has meant it's shrunk quite significantly over the last Now, I'm not saying that was the wrong strategy. I don't think it was at all, actually. And certainly, I think it, it matched the appetite that QB had for reinsurance at the time. And so I think that was done well. The next stage, though, we're looking at a very, very different marketplace. Now, I think there are opportunities for us to go and look at many things, actually, to try and growth outside of what we currently do. So, I mean, one of the biggest areas, I think, is truly globalizing the reinsurance business at QBE because it kind of fits within the current operational structure, which is set out in divisions, geographical divisions. And so while there is management responsibility for a global business, you get this kind of matrix approach where you have to, to do a lot of things specific to each operational division. And we need to run some of that to make the, to really introduce a kind of global view across the entire portfolio. Is there any part of the portfolio that's missing at the moment, therefore? Uh, by implication? Uh, I mean, we have a relatively small business within the US. You know, we have been, I would say, more focused around London than anywhere else in the world, but we have big, big plays in London and Brussels. So we've got Europe and uh, the UK in the market well served. In the US, it's been a, uh, a slower strategy there, I would say, in terms of growth. And I see big potential over there in terms of what we could do in terms of growth and, and profitability. So and that's about taking into new lines of business. It's about reviewing our risk appetite around cats, about reviewing our appetite around major global clients, which we don't do with at the moment. It's about getting the right office locations because currently it's only New York. And I think we need to think about that. So there's lots of you know, there's lots of, you know, individual things that we need to do, but that's one um, that we could be doing a lot more in, I think. 
QB was early out of the blocks in terms of getting fully capitalized. It was been the first capital raise after COVID-19. Do you feel that you're really ready to go now going into these mid-year renewals? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we have real risk appetite with the group. It's clear that going early and going relatively big in terms of making sure that the capital is in the right place puts us very much on the front foot. So I'm, I've been and will continue to be able to go and talk to our key brokers and say, we have the tools we, we have. So come to us and, and you'll get an answer, obviously. If it's the right price and the right risk, that's, that has put us very strongly, I would say, on the front foot, yeah. We must well talk straight about the mid-year renewals. Obviously, we've got Florida is presumably on your desk right now and getting quite hot. So you're very much in the market from what you're implying here is that you're, you've got aggregate, you're, you're, you've got appetite and you're ready to go. But I presume you don't want to be charging what you were charging last year. No, no. That's the key thing at the moment. What price is right and what risk is right in that area. So, I mean, obviously, just Burma Creek, you know, Florida companies price would be different anyway this year given the, the change in risk and the AOB issues etc but off the back of the fact that we've got COVID-19 hurting people's balance sheets and really all sorts of, of issues some of which could be quite colossal as we know there's a different price for risk I think there's a different price for putting your capital to work and so we'll see where the market ends up with that but I think it's a significant issue which I think we need to respond to. And what sort of prices are you holding out for? Uh, that very much varies, doesn't it? It will be market-driven, but we have our benchmarks that we've set around this. and we'll disclose exactly what they are, but it's a significant increase versus where we see things at the moment. Yeah, certainly. So the, the forecast is still for a very active hurricane season as well. So, that, I mean, that Mother Nature is not going to go away. Yes. Yeah, we're talking about renewals. What is your position regarding terms and conditions at renewals? Obviously, we've, we're talking about pricing, but what about TNC? Can you exclude pandemic risk easily from things that you could argue with a broker that there's clearly never been any intention of covering pandemic risk? What's your position? Are you clarifying exclusions where you think that there's never any intention? We are taking a product by product, client by client approach on this. I think, you know, it doesn't feel right to me to impose pandemic exclusion on every risk we have by any means. So for want of a better word, we are going to underwrite the exposure <laughs> to make sure that we, uh, you know, we understand it. And where there is a reasonable level of exposure, even without claims, we're going to push for a complete exclusion. But where we see little exposure, and when the client gets to his their analysis on uh, the size of that exposure, then it's, a, it's another discussion point within the whole writing discussion. On property, I mean, how worried are you about business interruption? creeping into cat excels and things that you would never have thought they should be in there willis re had their report out recently uh, it was the first sort of really academic work on covid19 they described covid19 business interruption as an ex- existential threat to the entire industry do you agree with that does that really worry you i think it is and i think they've directly but only if we see this kind of retroactive amendment of policies in particular i guess in the us but it's not isolated there i mean if that happens it is certainly an existential threat, there's no doubt. There's not a lot we can do about that in some ways. We'll see what emerges over time. Yeah, outside of that, you know, there are clear areas geographically and in terms of the underlying policies that we reinsure, which have, they have exposure here, even without thinking that the policy is overturned legally or whatever in terms of its intent. So there are schemes, MGAs, other things like that, which do have wording 
who actually which allows you know bi claims to be brought now of course what we've seen so far is that just about every one of those still has legal issues around it of a variety of types so i, I think what we're facing actually at the moment is a position where this is materially complex and i think there's going to be a lot of legal work to do before we get to a position where we really understand the claims we're going to get the likelihood of those claims etc um, so we're in the infancy of truly understanding all of this as a reinsurer what do you what's your gut feeling do you think you should just pick your seedants and then stand by them in the main yeah unless there is clear and present danger that you're just walking into a loss which that would be foolhardy regardless of the quality of the etc where that's the case if we can't get an exclusion we will unfortunately will have to come off and i think that's probably going to be the attitude that the market adopts in the main i mean some may be even more brutal i guess and just demand exclusion on just about everything but like i say that's our approach i just want to ask you about demand there's a lot of anecdotal suggestion we've had uh, john neil mentioned that uh, london deal flow is very much or submission flow is very much up is that what you're seeing? You're seeing a lot of demand. Are there new opportunities? Yes. So yes, there certainly are. In some ways, it's an obvious perfect storm. You've got great uncertainty on what the underwriting results are going to look like for the next, certainly the next 12 months, I would say, and significant exposure around the market. But with that, also, you have damage to the balance sheets because of asset value falls. And so really, people are in a position whereby they can either reduce their exposures because they haven't got enough capital to maintain them. They can go and raise capital, which is obviously what QBE did early, or actually you can pass off more risk, increases demand for reinsurance. So I'm certain that is not only happening, but will continue to gather pace. We've already seen quite an increase in submission flow, requests for quotes on new business, et cetera, around London, but also in the US. So clearly happening. And there's also, you know, there's surplus relief type covers being out there too. And I think this will be a really major step up in terms of demand. Of course, in certain areas, we're going to see demand and premium fall off. Uh, you know, in some of the specialty areas, for example, some of the motor type areas where, where actually we have quite a big reinsurance portfolio. So I think these things will balance, but I think overall demand is, it can only increase. And of course, the other thing that we're seeing and being told about, I guess, is that this is going to be another trauma for third party capital, where at the very least there's going to be a whole raft of additional crap capital. Uh, you know, they've got issues, their own issues with uh, their own portfolios in terms of valuations, etc. And I just see that as actually being another really big issue for retro and getting the, the capacity that's needed there. So companies that rely heavily on passing off to third party capital providers, I think, are gonna, again, they're going to have to find another way. Traditional, you know, there'll be more demand for that already, in fact. And in your position, are you much more traditional, would you say? Do you, you not reliant hugely on retro or third-party capital yeah so we're very much not reliant on third-party capital our approach has been to establish long trading relationships with a, a group of good business partners on the retro side so we do have outwards retro yeah but i'm sure the fact that we've had those long-term relationships won't protect us entirely from price increases at first of jan i think that's inevitable uh, we also write an inwards retro book ourselves so we'll see side too I was just wondering, what would be your gut feeling about, you, you mentioned about demand falling off, obviously in parts of the economy that have completely sort of shut down or really, really slowed down. Obviously, place, you mentioned auto, but aviation, obviously, and, and certain parts of specialty. Yeah. What do you think your gut feeling is that whether 
the rate increases that you're talking about that you feel confident I'm sure you'll get, will they offset overall the volume that is falling off because of the economy? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. My, my view, and there is, of course, a huge amount of uncertainty around this, but my view is that the increase in demand that's just going to be necessary because of injured balance sheets, together with a rate increase, will more than offset the fall in economy, if you like, or the economic demand. It's based on gut feel discussion rather than any kind of deep analysis, but I think that will be will at least balance and may well give rise to a bigger premium flow over the next year. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, in terms, uh, you're writing a book of Inwards Retro, and obviously, uh, like everybody, you do buy some. What do you think is happening? Is the pricing going to be far more accentuated there, the, the pricing shift? Yes, I think it will be. I think that's going to be the first thing to really monitor. A fair amount of the Florida renewal is reliant on third-party capital sitting behind some of the big reinsurers. And so these are going to come to the fore and they're going to come to the fore pretty quick, I think. So I think there's a real squeeze there, given also this is off the back of several years of investors not achieving any return. So it's, 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 it's both, if you like, a trap capital and a, and a supply, I think. And add to that that you know many of the big retro writers, are, well, the biggest has been over the last 10 years. I just think there's going to be a major shrinkage of, of available capacity with more demand again because of the need to uh, get protection because of injured balance sheets. So yeah, I think that will be the first to move and it will move the most. Actually. Steve, I'm just thinking back to 2005 and the last time we had a real proper retro crunch. And that was the time, if you could get hold of capacity, third-party capital, it, you know, it was the year of the sidecar. Yeah. So are you yeah. tempted at all? Do you think if you could lay your hands on capacity, given you have a good track record, you've got a good business, you've got good distribution, would 2020, 2021 be the year to get that one-year, two-year sidecar up and running? I think it, it would be a good thing to do. There's no doubt about that. And not just for one or two years. It's a, it's a kind of it's a mechanism which I think is has differentiated some of the reinsurers, but they're the ones at the moment that are going to be finding it pro- problematic to actually retain their exposure. So good in principle, but I think actually trying to execute would be very, very hard at the moment because I think we see shrinkage in well-established players' ability to, to find third-party capital. Anything new is going to be tough to set up. Just again. You know, there's not a shortage of capital. Would you? Is it just if you could promise them a return hurdle and that do you think they would suddenly appear? Yeah, but like I say, I think it's I think it's an appetite. I think after three years of damage and three years of bloody hopes, you know, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to attract any significant new capital uh, for a period of time now. But I wanted to ask you about I mean this is clearly a differentiation point in the marketplace. What do good reinsurers do at a time like this that not so good reinsurers don't do? One of the biggest things is making sure that your key people are not but they maintain an outwards focus. Um, you know, it's very easy at times like these to get wrapped up, effectively all your senior people, in processes which are just trying to work out your own position. But that's one of the key things, and keep that contact up with all your clients, all your brokers, uh, people around you in the company who you work with. Make sure that all continues, and if anything, be more outwards focused than, than you were before. I think that's a really big thing but then i think so you've got to be brave at times like these things like having a, a blanket exclusion that's not going to work for quite a few clients i think and if you're good at underwriting <laughs> you've got new clients like that coming into the market and you're reasonably brave and assess the exposure properly i think you can, can take advantage 
And the other thing I think is, you know, the maintaining of capacity, which we've spoken about already. I think that's incredibly important. So we've been put in a position very early where exactly what we can do. And there'll be a lot who aren't in that position and are kind of running around trying to work things out. And you know, being quick out of the blocks there is a is a real plus and a real advantage. I'd like to ask you about how insurable you think pandemic disease risk is. Do you think it's the sort of thing you need public-private solutions? I think that has to be part of the answer. It has to be because I think when you think through the extent and scale of just happening and, and happened, that becomes extremely difficult to ensure from an accumulation perspective. Extremely difficult. So, you know, I think it will lead to a kind of private scenario, absolutely. I think it will also a wholesale review of what we've done in the underlying policies to try and make sure this doesn't accumulate in quite the same way as it has in certain areas this time. But ultimately, the numbers are just too big to take in the way that you would like to give coverage up because that accumulation is gigantic. Obviously, you're an actuary, Steve. Before all this was kicking off, before COVID-19, we were probably the story would have been casualty and... Reserve, yeah. reserve deterioration and potential reserve strengthening in the marketplace. Yeah. Presumably none of that's gone away. Is that all still happening? Do you think there's something you mentioned also that you're not, there are new classes that you'd like to be getting into. Would you be walking towards casualty at the moment given the rating um, changes? Yes. Yeah, so the simple answer to that is yes. Pricing has moved, particularly in the US, quite substantially. And I think he's getting to and probably tipping beyond what the kind of price for the risk is. You know, it hasn't been there probably for, for quite a period of time, particularly financial lines, but other, other areas of casualty. You know, I do think there's a real opportunities there. We don't see ourselves as particularly exposed to prior year deterioration. We've avoided many of the areas which are seeing the worst of that. And I think this is a company that has a philosophy of run towards the fire while everybody else is running away because you know, that is a time when you can actually start establishing some great relationships for the future and also get a good price for the risk that you're taking on. So. Yeah, in terms of having the COVID-19 going on, but also having a almost big hole in global reserves for insurance and reinsurance, I, w- I actually wonder which of those is bigger. I think Willis Ree said the, uh, the event is going to cost the industry $140 billion COVID I event. think that was the worst case scenario, yes. Yeah, but you know, you get commentary from you know, anywhere from 50 to 150, that kind of thing. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we see prior year deterioration over the next five years or so of the same sort of size. Really? Yeah, because you weren't really a big player in casualty before. This is, would you say, this is your ideal time to be running towards that fire, as you said? As long as you've got the right tools, the right underwriters, you know, the right way of understanding the client and the risk, absolutely. You should be expecting news from you in that regard. Yes, indeed. There has been, yeah, you you mentioned about the Willis Free report, and we've seen commentary coming from the Q1 commentary from executives. Some have been saying that they think that COVID-19 could be the largest loss event the insurance industry has ever seen, or if not, one of the largest. What sort of gut feeling do you have on that? I think it will be the largest insurance event that we've ever seen. I think, you know, even without wholesale turnover of the I-wording by lawmakers, I think it's still going to be the largest insurance event we've ever seen. As a business, it affects so many areas. There's unseen exposure. There's just exposure. It's very uncertain. But in casualty and FinPro lines, you know, as we've seen, across property through event cancellation, credit insurity type businesses getting possible numbers at times for that. You know, it touches everything. I think pretty much. 
And so that, that's why I think it will just add up across all those areas. Absolutely. Another thing I want to ask is, do you think it's inevitable that we'll end up with a, lots of different disputes between, obviously, insurers? We've seen insurers and insureds in dispute, things just coming to a head. Do you think that they're likely to then develop into insurer versus reinsurer disputes with things like hours clauses and all sorts of other complications? I think that's, again, it's inevitable because this is an, an event. I mean, take a cap policy. This is an event I don't think anybody ever thought would accumulate into a cap policy. One of the reasons for that is how, how the hours clause, for example, works or how scratia payments might work if that's going on and is in, in certain jurisdictions. So I think there's going to be a lot of testing here of the wording of contracts. And, you know, I think that's going to rumble on for quite some time. And again, I presume that's a place where you as a reinsurer can differentiate yourself by being, if you'd stand by your client, then yeah. that is how you're going to retain that client. Yeah, absolutely. And have a go forward position. I mean, you, you, you know, you're not necessarily going to stand by a client and, and take on an almost loss as the renewal comes up. That wouldn't be sensible. But in the main, being responsive to your clients, making sure that there's a big communication angle here at the moment too, isn't it? Responding quickly, working hand in glove with your client and your broker to make sure that you get as good an outcome as you can. So yeah, I, I think that's very important. Great. Well, thanks very much, Steve. I wish you well in this lockdown. I hope we all come out of lockdown soon because it'd be nice to sort of meet up face to face. But thanks, thanks very much. Keep us updated and good luck with all upcoming renewals and everything else. Thanks very much, Mark. Excellent. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.